Hello, sweet friends, and welcome to the Vandaltrong Curious World Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Finest Kind Tea. Their tea mixers and modifiers is a carefully crafted infusion of elemental tastes orchestrated to bloom the instant you add its first drop to water or your favorite cocktail. Essentially, Finest Kind Tea makes tea concentrate. So you can add that to water or what I do, I add it to an adult beverage. Wink, wink. Um, Jay Lombard, the creator of Finest Kind Tea, was on the show recently. And, you know, he was kind of sharing where the, the company is really headed towards in terms of, you know, the term mixers and modifiers is a, is a high-end bartending vocabulary. But fuck it. If you're a you know, single mom in Iowa or wherever you, wherever you live, whatever you do... You can get finest kind tea. You can do whatever the fuck you want with it. You know, pour that shit and, you know, mix it with uh, bourbon, whatever you want. It's awesome. Handcrafted in a lovely state of Maine. Great ingredients. Cool people. That's it. And you know what, man, by the way? I'm never going to peddle anything that I don't believe in or that I don't use. Finestkindtea.com. Go check them out. If you are... If you've been listening to the show, and I, you know, based on the feedback that I've been getting, it's not just my cat Bob, but human beings out there. Thank you. I want to take this time out to say thank you for. See, there are plenty of things that you can do, and there are plenty of things that you can listen to. Plenty of other podcast shows you can listen to. So I really, I want to take the time and say thank you for allowing me, basically allowing me into your life, allowing me to enter your brain through your earbuds on your way to work on your way home or taking a walk whatever thank you for thank you if you're new to the show essentially the curious world podcast is about truthful conversation and wherever that exploration wherever that journey takes us uh, i like to call it ordinary people having extraordinary conversations you know the idea is no matter what you're doing, no matter what you're going through in your life, that you're going to listen to these conversations and you're going to agree with some things, maybe you'll disagree with some things, but you'll see a reflection of your life in the lives of my guests and you know, the conversations that we have. And then, you know, you can take that away with you. Or, or at, at the very least, you can just make fun of me, which... Everybody does, and that's totally cool. We're creating an online community, and I'm so grateful that you want to be a part of it, by, just by listening. Um, my guest today is Dr. Anthony Arichetti. He is a uh, former addiction counselor, and he's the current co-director of the Simulation Studio. Dr. Arichetti uh, essentially was the you know, he planted the seeds in me in terms of, you know, what it is to be mindful, what it is to be curious, um, you know, to, to, to really look at things objective, objectively, not right or wrong, not good or bad, but, but look at something and be objective and investigate. Investigate the why, investigate the how, and just dig deep. Because you want to, because, you know, why, why, do, why do things work this way? And um, 
I don't want to take up too much time. I just want to get right into this conversation. Dr. Eric Hedy, you know, at the end of uh, shows, I do occasionally say Bodhisattva. It's just it's just kind of a mantra that I do for for myself. And you know, if you're listening, you maybe does get maybe you get benefit from it too. So he said, "Hey, why don't you kick off the show with the Steely Dan song?" So I thought about it, but then uh, then I found this song instead, which uh, might be a better fit with uh, all things considered based on this conversation. So without further ado, my conver- my truthful conversation with the noble, honorable, always interesting, always curious, Dr. Anthony Arichetti. We're caught in a trap. I can't walk out because I It's kind of a blanket statement. Well, I think the Taliban, they need to get a good sex life. I think that could be part of their problem. Well, they they want, uh, don't they want like 40 virgins? <laughs> Which would be, I mean, if they were ever around right. a virgin, they would know the headache that that is. <laughs> yeah, who would, who would, oh my God. Yeah, you wonder, what is the sex life of jihadists or anybody that's really radicalized? Are they... Did you know? I, I found this out that uh, that you know Google does. I hope rec- this doesn't get us in trouble. By the way, I hope you don't. <laughs> yeah. I'll just call it. Yeah, the fatwa. Yeah. That the uh, um, the most Google Googled uh, search in uh, I think Iran is uh, anal sex. <laughs> Which I well, think is pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Again, if you restrict something, it has nowhere to go. Yeah. Right? It's gonna. Boom, blow up. Right. Look at different cultures in our society. Like Japan, for instance. Uh, it's, I don't know if I could say repressed, because that maybe that's not the word. Because that word gets so associated with Japan so often, I don't think that's accurate. Um, but there's a certain, there's a new world and an old, old world, and they're kind of bumping against each other. And I think it, sex is definitely not as predominant in that culture as, as some other cultures but as a result, what you what you get is this underground. You right. know, like um, if you want it, you'll find it. You know, uh, you know, women's underwear and vending machines, right. these love hotels, yeah. so forth. Um, but that's not on the surface. But again, it goes back to what I was saying. Before. Uh, if you, it's like a beach ball when you're in, in a pool or in the ocean. You you pull it down, mm-hmm. and the further it goes down, and you really let it go, the harder it's gonna like shoot it into the air out of the water. Yeah, I feel that way about about anything really, but especially sex. Do you, Do you know about alibis? No. Alibis. Um, I I read this article about ten years ago, maybe it was less, about alibi shops in Japan. Oh yeah 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 yeah, and um, it it was really about this this topic. It was talking about how bad the economy was in Japan, but one little industry that was thriving were alibias or, or alibi shops and basically it said that you know Japan is a relatively small place and it's kind of repressed 
and so it's hard to uh, really be expressive. Uh, so there, there would have to be a lot of uh, alibis made to kind of uh, live a fuller sex life, I suppose, or get away with things. And so alibi shops weren't always about getting, getting, giving someone an alibi to have a sexual liaison, but it was also about other things, about the type of work that you're in. If you needed to uh, need an alibi where you're supposed to be working one place but not another, you know, you could, you could pay for an alibi. Somebody would, would lie for you. <laughs> you know, so I just got really fascinated by alibis. Like, what kind of alibis do people need to live the kind of, the kinds of, the kind of life that they want to live? So I briefly started an alibi shop called, uh, and I still have the domain names like alibi.com. I never really developed into a website because when I told people about this, they were either fascinated or appalled. You know, they were saying, well, you know, law of karma. How, how do you bring that up, by the way? What do you mean? <laughs> hey, so I heard you're going on a business trip. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you need an alibi? Well, I wasn't, I was just telling people that. Uh, about this fascinating, as we are, you know, this fascinating thing that I want to start an alibi shop. I really am curious. I don't want to really help people lie. I'm just more interested in finding out what do they need alibis for? What do they want to get away with but can't? What kind of restricted lives are people living? And um, so I started, you know, I was doing a lot of traveling and I collected. Every time I went to hotels anywhere around, around the world, I would bring back stuff. And the idea would be, well, um, did you tell your partner you were going to Singapore, whereas where you really went was Kuala Lumpur? I've got shampoo bottles, stationery from the, uh, the Four Seasons Hotel in Kuala Lumpur. I can give you, I can sell you. If you so therefore, when you come back, you'll have stuff from the place that you actually were supposed to be in. And, and uh, you could hide the fact that you were, you were actually in some, some other place. So I, I was just fascinated by what do people really need to need alibis for? You know, because I, I just was more interested in the human predicament than, have, than getting, you know, having people get over on their partner. And, um, and then finally someone said, look, you know, you could be sued or maybe you'll be implicated in a crime. And yeah. so that kind of put, you know, put it in perspective but again I guess it gets back to what we started talking about was just the interest you know the curiosity in what people do how do you get through this life and um, try to have an interesting life when we live in a, a some version of repression whether it's religion which is like being in North Korea or um, you know Japan or, or you know even the United States is very repressed in lots of ways still you know it's very it's very Christian, and um, so it's not that I want to do all these things. I just want to find out what other people are doing, you know. And so I think there's a certain part of me that really likes to live vicariously, because I'm really kind of a coward. I don't know that I want to do all the things that I want to find out about. I really don't, but I want to find out about what's what's going on and do some research into that. What do you, what do you mean, cowardness? Well, I you know. Um, if I were, if I really had a lot more balls, I would be a con man. Yeah, I mean, con men are well, they're sociopaths, <laughs> but they but they live multiple lives, 
they um, really are, it's a thing I learned about when I was working in criminal justice. Criminals understand psychology better than psychologists. That if you want to learn about psychology, hang around with a criminal. Don't go to, don't go to psychology class because there are just a lot of people in class. Academia, right? Academia is just the last place to be curious. Um, hang around with a criminal if you want to learn about human nature. Um, but I never really wanted to be a criminal because I, I never wanted to go to jail. I never really wanted to you know, risk being locked up. And so that's the, uh, that's the uh, uh, I, I guess, the basis of my cowardice. You know, you can have fantasies about being a criminal, but when you, if you do it, I know what the outcome is, having worked in criminal justice. Jail is a horror story. Yeah, I don't, uh, I think about jail all the day, I, I, probably every day. You do? I think about... About jail? About jail every day, yeah. Really? What do, you, what, do you, what do you think about? All that I'll somehow end up there, and I'll just live my miserable, torturous life in prison. <laughs> What would you do to get yourself put in jail? I don't know. That's kind of like you've like you like kind of flip through the end of the book right. and you kind of like bypass all those chapters and just like he ended up in prison and suffering a horrible life. And yeah, that the, that's the end. Well, would it be because of some crime of passion or I don't know something that you intended to do that really went wrong and. Uh... Uh, well, we all have good intentions, right? Even, yeah. even, even every every criminal in, in prison probably had good intentions yeah. when they did it. Oh, yeah, people really calculate. There's a great movie, Till the Devil, Till the Devil Knows You're Dead. Oh, yeah. With uh, yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman and... Um, Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke, yeah. great movie. I love that movie. I think that was uh, Sidney Lumet's last movie, yeah, the director who did Dog Day Afternoon and Serpico. I thought it was, I thought it was a brilliant movie about... Um, unintended consequences, and uh, so I, you know, of course I don't want to go to jail. You know, I, being locked up and, and restrained is kind of my worst worst nightmare. But you uh, now, I um, you counseled um, uh, criminals. I mean, what, what the state would call criminals. Yeah, yeah. Um, and were they also? Were they also addicts, or was that something else? Oh, there were um, oh, there were a range of things. Yeah, mostly they were they had um, oh god, either like explosive personality disorders, were violent, or many of them were just petty criminals. Uh, most of them had some sort of drug or alcohol abuse problem, and so um, yeah, yeah, there were. I I dealt with people who were. We're, we're pretty petty criminals. People that, you know, didn't steal that much money. This, you know, the assault and battery was a big crime. I didn't have many murderers. I didn't. Although I did have a special caseload of psychiatric criminals. People that were were locked up in a uh, psychiatric institute. One guy uh, murdered his wife. So because I, I got a counseling degree, while well, as a probation officer, I had a special little caseload. Of the of uh, psychiatric cases, was he? Did he? Was he remorseful? Um, no, you know he was um, a Polish refugee, and um, he um, he was he killed he murdered his wife, and um, 
So I got involved because his lawyer was trying to get him out of jail because he was judged to be criminally insane. And he was locked up in um, Ancora State Hospital. It was a psychiatric hospital in New Jersey. And um, I can't even remember his name right now, but his name was Yosef something. And so I, I got involved because he was going to have to be monitored when he came out of jail. And I met him in the psychiatric clinic. And this is an older guy. And... Um, he just sweated profusely. He just was a wreck, you know, of a person. He had been imprisoned by the Nazis. He had been tortured. I don't think he was Jewish. I think he was just a Polish underground person. He told me, um, you know, in, 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 the, in, the, in, in uh, the psychiatric center, he, he told me about escaping from the Nazis. And uh, he and a guy, you know, they were rowing across the sea for 35 days in an open boat, you know, and finally, you know, they were able to fish. And anyway, so when he was released, I went to visit it, visit him in his home. And the only thing that he had in his home was this picture of Jesus. And it was a really nice picture of Jesus kind of walking into the, um, down a path into a beautiful sunset. And um, I thought, that, that's nice, at least there's, there's a, this guy has some peace in his life. And uh, within two weeks, he hanged himself in his house. Within two weeks of being released, he hanged himself. And so he Do wanted to get out of jail to kill himself. Wow. I think he was just tortured by whatever he had experienced during the war. Did you were, you, were you surprised that he did that? No, no, the time that you... Well, in retrospect, I didn't have a lot of experience, so I wasn't picking up on anything. I was interested in his stories. I was fascinated by the picture of Jesus in his house, the spareness of his apartment. And, I, and I, thinking back on it, I thought, this guy didn't intend to stay around. You know, there was not one little single piece of anything in his apartment, this little crummy apartment in Camden, New Jersey, that indicated that he intended to make a new life for himself. And I mean, he was just a wreck. I mean, he just was sweating and he couldn't get a sentence out. And I just think he was severely depressed and wanted to die and he couldn't do it in a... Did he ever talk about his wife? Why he killed her? Or, or just talk about her? Like it, no. He never brought her up. Uh, you know, and I, I should have... I, I wish I had asked him about that, but I didn't. I stayed away from it. We mostly talked about his past, everything leading up to killing his wife. He killed her in a rage one night. Like how, like hands or I, I think or? he knifed her, yeah. And I just think he, the guy had major PTSD. He was a fucking prisoner of war. He'd been tortured. He escaped from Poland and um, kills his wife. He came to America, killed his wife, who was also Polish, went to jail, and then but he was clearly insane, and then they, uh, his lawyer got him released from jail, and then within two weeks, he's, he killed himself. <laughs> so uh, Were you nervous? Was I nervous about... Uh, speaking with him? No, no, not at all. No, because I really believed at that time that I was invincible, and that I could, I could uh, ask any question, you know, take any photograph, and uh, go anywhere, and, and no harm would come to me because... I'm curious. I had the mantle of curiosity and goodness, which is just uh, yeah, ridiculous. That's the last famous last words of any martyr. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I had this uh, illusion of uh, 
of being invisible. We're not not invisible, but just uh, protected. So we, we were talking earlier about faith. I had faith that uh, my goodness or my curiosity would protect me somehow. And uh, but I also knew maybe I shouldn't ask certain questions. You know, it's about timing too. But in, but but if you had a time machine, you'd be. Do you throw caution to the wind? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, if I had more time with him, if I had gotten to know him, I would have asked him about his wife. But yeah. a lot of it is just, i got to get to know this guy. This guy can barely speak. Right. He's just drowning in his own sweat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, for, in terms of your counseling background, uh, I, I know you, you, you've, you've uh, told me, aside from, from those, those individuals, you also uh, uh, were a counselor for uh, cocaine abuse. Is that, yeah. is that correct? Um, well, yeah, everything. No, okay, so that would be my question. So yeah. so they would just put everybody in the facility, whether it's alcohol, cocaine, or uh, mm. any, any kind of, uh, uh, anything that would need counseling for abuse, they would just kind of well, if funnel you, them to you? Or? Well, I would, my job was to monitor then and make sure that they got treatment. Not for me, but because um, I did treatment later. But when I was a probation officer, I mostly monitored their treatment um, and made sure that they actually attended if they did. And I, I even set up a cocaine anonymous group at a hospital and attended the first few meetings. And um, I mean, it's really funny, the power of stories. Um, when I set up the cocaine anonymous group, um, so these are all cocaine addicts um, and they wanted a place to meet, you know, to talk. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous. So I found a place um, for them to meet at the local hospital. And that night, uh, the first night, people were talking. Have you ever been to one of these meetings? Not for cocaine. For, uh, but yeah, alcohol, cocaine, they're pretty much all the same. You know, they, it starts off with uh, you know, people introducing themselves and they, you know, the 12 steps. And then people share their stories you know, about their cocaine abuse and how they've wrecked their lives. And I ended up telling a story about how I um, it, I was using cocaine and you know was really out of control, and then I stopped using it. But I, it wasn't true. It was it wasn't true. I just kind of made up the story because it, it seemed like it's storytelling. <laughs> and and I realized at the time this is wrong, you know. But um, I wondered how well, many what is addicts that? are telling stories that aren't true either because it's a storytelling forum. But they were all, they, they were, were there because they were, they had to be there. And right? I felt like joining in. I wanted to be part of the group. So I made up my own story of cocaine addiction. What was your story? I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember the details. You don't have to be a former addict to be a counselor, correct? No, no. But it, it's just, it just happens that way that a lot of them A are. lot of people who are addicts, um, you know, become counselors. Don't you think that's dangerous? It can be. In, in the sense that they are, they're, they're, they're looking at this, uh, this person who's abusing this drug through, through their own experience. Well, yeah, I think that they, um, yeah, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and so the problem with working with addicts, and I, I taught a fair amount in uh, graduate school too on uh, addictions. I taught in a, a program. Uh, I, I taught a lot around Philadelphia in graduate programs. And uh, so I did teach courses in addictions, and often they were attended by former addicts or people that were in recovery who were now wanted to be uh, 
you know, treatment counselors. And they had a very rigid view, uh, and probably very realistic too, of um, you know, what addiction was and what it took to overcome it. Which is? Um, total abstinence. You know, you can't, you can't go near it. There's no possibility that you could even experiment. And, uh, you know, just, just mainly abstinence. And, um, which I didn't have a problem with. If that's what your, if that's what your world view is, that's fine. But I think the thing that I tried to bring up was how the addictions model was constructed. It's a, it's, it's a world view. It's a point of view. It's made up, you know, and addictions uh, has to be uh, put in a medical, you know, framework or else it's not going to be respected. That's just the world we live in. If you're talking about treatment, you're talking about medicine stuff, you know, you're, you know, so, and that was part of the whole problem I had with addictions counseling and counseling in general was it, it pathologized everything. It didn't really see what the, what the, the functional use was. And so, I, I don't know, I just got, I, I got dissatisfied with that worldview that everything is a pathology. Every, every bad thing that you do is a pathology, and so... Um, right, but it, would you say that majority of addiction is a result of something traumatic that happens? No, as a result that not really. I think it's multi. What separates something that I've 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 thought about a lot is you know what separates. Okay, so for instance, I drink I drink a lot, but there are day then but it's all by choice. Right. And some days I don't feel like drinking, but right. and then there are days where, or nights or that I consume a lot. Right. But I've never, I've never had to need the drink. Right. So what separates me? From, like, I worked with a guy who would come in with the bulbous red nose, right. and he would be sweating, and I could be just, he just, he's just sweating alcohol at, like, 10 a.m. Right. What separates him from me? If, is it pathology? Well, I, I think, I think a lot of it is how functional are you? What damage is it doing to your body? How much control do you have over it? And, um... You know, over the course of time, does it get worse? And for some people, it's a, it's a phase that they go through, and it could be a long phase, but then they eventually grow out of it because, I don't know, it doesn't work anymore. Others can't, cannot not drink. I had a father-in-law like that. He's just a raging alcoholic, you know, and uh, he could not not drink. And, um, and he, had a, he had kind of a tragic life. You know, his brother was killed in front of his house in an argument with the family next door. I don't know if that's what caused his addiction, but he was Irish. You know, Irish drink a lot. You know, they, they traditionally, his, they drink to get drunk versus drinking to, let's say, as a food or, or uh, you know, something that is more or less uh, sensual. But there's that through line though, right? I mean, in terms of he was unhappy and then he started drinking. Right. So that's that's that vicious cycle that that starts to you know that starts to rev up. Um, yeah. Well, I, definitely alcohol is a depressant. And by the way, to your listeners out there, I don't mean to to cast aspersions on the Irish and calling them alcoholics. <laughs> I think they have a particular view of drinking, though. There's sure. a kind of a cultural way that they drink, and not every obviously not sure, every we're all aware of that. Alcoholic. Yeah. But they definitely have a a different 
way of thinking about alcohol which is constructed. Exactly. So like in this culture, you know, you're not supposed to drink until you're 21. Yeah. Of course. And then big know, mistake. Most kids uh, get accepted to college. They go away. Right. And they go bananas, right? Yeah, right. They're like going to keggers, they're puking, they're uh. um, My girlfriend's family is in Japan and, and my audience, forgive me, I feel like I bring up Japan like almost every other podcast, but um, so her family is a drinking family. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> but drinking in the sense that there's, you know, at, at, uh, at lunch, there's, there's, uh, there's sake, and there's a beer for yeah. me. I mean, I was the guest. But my point is nobody's getting hammered. Nobody's getting violent. Nobody's getting angry. We're just drinking a lot. Right. And it's all... It's also kind of a, like a social lubricant in the sense of yeah. it's kind of relaxing you. Hey, what are you up to? Right. What's going on? Different points of view of, of drinking. Right. And see how... There's no public drunkenness in, in Japan. Uh, for, you know, And so because they're approach to alcohol is just different yeah, versus right. here um so i guess uh, what i guess the 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 uh, i'm trying to circle back to how we as individuals view alcohol right yeah. so like i said i've never i mean i guess there have been times where i've been depressed and i and i've like you know had you know finished like a fifth of vodka or whatever but I, like I said, maybe it's, is it luck? Is it something medical? Is it in my DNA that I've just got lucky and I dodged a bullet? Whereas it's something that like, oh my god, I, it's uh, you know, it's six o'clock. I really need a drink. Well, I think it's a, I think it's everything. I mean, geez, you know, certain ethnic groups have a real intolerance to alcohol. You know, they can really get hooked, or they have a much more difficult physiological response to it so I, I just it's so but if you're happy I'm not really and you're an drinking what makes an alcoholic anymore but well let's take any drug yeah. you know if you're doing if you're happy if you have a good mindset I would imagine that you won't abuse it right as opposed to somebody who's miserable yeah. and like ah, I'm just oh, my I, life I sucks. went through years where I could not be in a social situation unless I was high yeah smoke reefer <laughs> Could not do it. 2014? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I'm over that. I'm, I'm kind of over that period. But I really could not be in a, in a, in a period, in a, in a social situation, unless I got high. Because it, uh, I think I was depressed. And pot helped. It was, I was self -med, I was That was my medication for depression. And it probably wasn't a bad thing. It, I just was more... Engaged in the conversation, had more things to say. I don't know. I don't know. But I think gradually I grew to not need it quite so much. So I don't know. For a period of time, I can say that I was addicted because I couldn't do without it. It was a real crutch. But I don't know. I don't feel that anymore. You know. And uh, but it goes back to what you just said, right? It's in the the emotional attachment. Yeah. So, I mean... I love the ritual of it. I smoke a lot of weed, but I'm not, like... <laughs> I'm not knocking out old ladies to get their purses so I can go get weed. Right. So right. that's... Because I don't... I don't... I'm not... I don't have any emotional attachment to it. Yeah. Currently, that could change. Right, right. So, my theory is that, you know, in terms of, like, you know, what... And something I've always been fascinated... In my life. What makes an addict? Whether yeah. it's... Whether it's drugs, whether it's... 
uh, alcohol, whether it's sex, whether it's cutting yourself, or what makes an addict? And I... I guess it's uncontrolled, you know, behavior that's out of your control, that's driven by some behavior or substance or mental state. And, um, but it's got to be it's, it's got to be more than cognitive, right? It's got to be like sure, it's, we it's all we all we were hungry right. or we're drunk and we, we crave a food. Right. But there's always going to be a specific food. Some some people may crave yeah ding dongs. Some people may crave Cheetos. Some people may crave I don't know a salad because there's there's a comfort to that, right? But especially wherever we may be uh, in terms of like where you are currently when you have that craving maybe it's a childhood memory you may have or just uh, it's not something in the frontal lobe but it's something that like oh you know I'm hungry you know what I deserve and I've been good today I'll deserve it I, I'm going to get some ice cream or whatever it may be right so but there's a there's an emotional attachment to that yeah. to that desire I feel like any addiction is that and and when when you abuse anything, it's to to remedy a a situation, something something traumatic. Um, whether it's like I said, whether it's cutting yourself or or whether you're addicted to sex in an unhealthy way, or mm-hmm. or even junk food, even eating, or yeah. people get addicted to exercise. Right. Right. Because they're covering, right? I mean, they have they're covering up something that they can't deal with on an emotional level. Or, or they're stimulating themselves, or, or. Um, I'm talking abuse. Abuse. Okay. I don't mean like, oh my, I love to run. I run all the time. Yeah. That's healthy. That's. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was reading the other day about um, about uh, uh, like sex offenders. Right. Uh, um, and and. Uh, speaking of uh cognitive behavior and you know there was this theory of like well what if you know they're they're you know implementing a drug to to eradicate that that desire number one is that clinically possible number two is that is that is that more is that morally is that morally right morally ethically like what are your thoughts on that um, look, I think anything that will stop sex of, sex offenders from abusing is probably a good thing. I don't advocate castration because you could, I don't think I don't think sex offenses are about sex. It's about power. So you, you can cut off their sex organs and they can still strangle someone. That may be the, the primary fear, a thrill rather. So. Sure, I mean, if somebody is a an habitual offender and knows it. They're probably in a lot of pain themselves. Like when you talk to sex offenders, um, they're they're moral outcasts. But when you really get to know them or talk to them, they're not happy people, you know, because they've got this impulse that they can't control. But in the moment, it, it could be extremely thrilling, and, and they get a sense of power. But after it's over, they they frequently st- uh, suffer, you know, remorse, and. Um, so it's, it's, it's very complex. So I think a lot of sex offenders, um, if you were able to calm them down somehow, would probably welcome something that would not make them so, um, what, vulnerable to their own, their own impulses. But then, then you've got to give them something. I mean, that's the, the problem. You take something away. Uh, what do they get in return except to be 
to have their impulses reduced. I think that's kind of the dilemma of why people don't want to give up their, their addiction. Because what are you going to give me in return? What, you know, this has served me. This has served a useful purpose in my life. It's kept me um, undepressed or it's, it's suppressed feelings or, you know, different things. So does that make sense? Yeah, well, I, I, getting back to the, the, the addiction side, I also feel like certain, certain emotional currents are, are just perfect fits yeah. for, for addiction. Yeah. Um, a lot of personalities... A lot of uh, a lot of alpha males are very ripe for for addiction, and you see a lot of you know, ex athletes. They get addicted to uh, painkillers, and they move from painkillers to yeah. to heroin. Um, but I guess uh, in terms of in terms of you know correcting uh, uh, sex offenders through medication. Yeah. What about? Uh, I always get the terms confused: pedophilia and pederas. I think one. I think one is the actual, the actual act, and one is the desire for yeah. for to have sex with an underage person. Um, yeah, yeah one, like, taking a pill and just eradicating that from somebody. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, well, well, pedophiles are often people who uh, identify with, uh, you know, people, children who are at the emotional age that they are, that they themselves are, and they, you could be 60 and still, you know, identify with 10-year-olds because you haven't grown. Yeah, but the pederast is the one that really pursues it. So is, is our, is that, would our, would our society benefit from something like that? From, uh... Like a, like a magical, a magical pill and it's just, whoop. Well, I would say yes, since there's so much, uh, there's so much uh, abuse of women of, of little girls, it's just epidemic, and we're only now, I think, starting to come to terms with it. You know, I, there's been all these stories lately about um, the abuse of, of college girls. You know, everybody knows this, and it's just like a dirty secret. Now it's finally coming to light. Some of the fraternities. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, if you get to talk to victims and what their life is like as a result of um, having been abused, I, I don't think that those that abuse have much of a case when it comes to doing whatever it takes for you to not abuse anymore. You know, I don't think they should be put in jail either and, and where they're subjected to abuse. I think that's just cruel to take an abuser who's going to be like just victimized in jail. That's sadistic. So I think they have to be separated, medicated if that's possible, whatever it takes, monitored. Um, but they, they, we have to prevent them from continuing to, to abuse and I think we have to stop it. And men have to patrol, they have to really monitor other men because men are monsters, you know. Like we are the cause of the world's misery. Don't you think, let's face it, men and our testosterone have largely created you know all the wars most of the abuse so much misery I think that we we should just take some responsibility for let's, it and monitor just, ourselves let's just all lob it off no I, I think I, I don't know what it is I, I think it's, it's our brain you know it's, it's, it's something it's how we're socialized and it's, our, it's brain chemistry it's, it's not one thing but I, I, I just think men um, should really be intolerant 
of abuse, and and men know it. You know, they they you know as you probably I remember you know God in college I I knew this was going on, you know in fraternities I wasn't part of a fraternity, but I don't know I, I just think we need to do a better job in men patrolling each other. I think about and, it. And if it takes medication to keep somebody under control because they're out of control and are abusing people, yes. That is morally correct. Definitely. But throwing them in jail? Fuck no. Because then they're, they're, they're going to be victimized. And that's just... I, I, don't, I just think they have to be dealt with humanely and separated. Right. Well, I... I guess the, re well, the reason I've been thinking about this is you take this issue and if you're, let's say you're very religious yeah, and you're a legislator, uh, like in, 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 like in Indiana, yeah. you know, that one legislature said, you know what, let's just, let's just make it clear that we don't advocate homosexuality. Right. Um, you, if you're a business owner, you can, okay. you, you can, uh, you can, uh, you can discriminate. You can discriminate against gays, you're right. Yeah. I think for most free thinking people, that's that that that's ridiculous. Right. That's sad and it's silly. But there's there's other people who would you know, in fact I was talking to an actor. He's like you know what he said? He's like, you know, uh, you know, I was raised Catholic, so I, I don't I understand I understand what, what you're saying what you know, how, how you know the outrage, but I also understand that you know I don't I I don't you know if I have a business I uh, you know I don't want gay people in there. This is an actor, a theater actor in New York City. Now he's not being hateful. He he was just he was sharing his thoughts with me. So obviously like you know. Did he come on your show and say that? No, no 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 no. He didn't. Get, get him to. Uh, yeah, I just outed him, uh, literally. Now uh, so but my point is, um, what if there's a pill that can do the same with homosexuality? Well, homosexuality isn't a, um, it's not a perversion. It's not a mental illness. I mean, it's a... Well, depending on your source, many people, many believe that it's an abomination. Well, that's where we get back to the idea that, you know, you're, you're entitled to your faith, but you're not entitled to the facts. And the fact is, um, you know, in the animal world, there's homosexuality. There's, you know, there's... <laughs> I mean, is it's just, you know, we have to come to terms with the sexuality of humans, and it's not a, uh, an, an, uh, it's not a mental illness. I mean, that's been even even the American Psychiatric Association, you know, as conservative as they are now, now you know, will admit that. So, you know, your faith may tell you it's wrong, but we live in a secular society and that's like the big issue right now that religious conservatives want to like eliminate the the, the wall between uh, church and state and uh, you know the founding people really tried to keep religion out of you know government and the secular life while unfortunately mentioning God a lot you know because that's that was the 18th century so I think the big debate in the future is going to be um, whether or not religion is going to have a much bigger voice than it does right now in secular society. And I mean, that's going on all over the place. It's going on, on in the Muslim world. Uh, in Israel, it's, it's, a, it's a battle between you know, you know, secular Jews and religious Jews. 
So it's, it's a worldwide phenomenon right now. I think people are afraid of the future. People are afraid and they're like clinging to their faith because it's so fucking scary how we are developing and now gay people are finally recognized as being normal. And uh, I just... They are? I'm just kidding. Well, you know, among... Uh, <laughs> Also, technology. Technology is making our world that much smaller. Yeah, you know, people. Yeah. We have access to all you know, all the data that we have ever had. We have a, we have access to that. Right on the internet. Well, we can know we can know everything, but understand nothing. I mean, that's the dilemma. We've got so much information, we can't make sense out of it. But our world's world's shrinking. Right. You know, and and we can debunk things really quickly. Yeah. You remember when you used to have an argument with somebody? And you know, uh, you know, you know, Willie Mays, you know, score, you know, had this many home runs. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. Oh, yeah, right, you want right. to find it in twenty seconds. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, you know, we can we can debunk a lot of things. Yeah. And so I think people who are curious are taking that next step for their own lives in right. terms of their own in terms of their views of religion, their relig their views of morality, and I think that's why you have this kind of uh, this friction of uh, people throughout the world. And their view, their secular views. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what do you do though um, with people who deny science of, for example, global warming? I mean, ninety percent, ninety-five percent of scientists around the world say yes, indeed, um, humans are contributing to global warming through the production of CO two. I mean, that's well established. So you just can't go to the internet and say to, to faith-based people. Uh, here's the information. They will say, "Well, it's junk science," and so people can pick and choose right. and decide. Well, two fronts on that. Uh, I, I think, I think it's, most of it's horseshit because of two things. Number one, what is the 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 debunking of science to this degree? Yeah. Like in Florida, you're actually it's a, they made it a. Uh, I think it's unlawful to use the term global warming. Right. <laughs> That's great. So you do have a religious. Yeah. Uh, uh, sector who you know even 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 Texas had a drought uh, I think last summer right. they were actually they were actually praying for rain I mean 2014 they're praying for rain not the whole state but um, <laughs> you have lobbyists right. you know you have think about all the things that you know in terms of coal in terms of gasoline sure they're behind a lot of this debunking the science exactly they're behind yeah so you're you're trying to erode their lifestyle right you know these making they're making billions and right. you're you're attacking their business their business model right so naturally they're going to fight back right so that's what we're dealing with here you know a lot of times i feel like any kind of progress that we you know that, that try to make you're disrupting you know yeah things that are already in place that are profitable so they're going to fight they're going to fight for for their money they're going to fight for their way of life i i think that's a great point you know the idea that all progress is undone there's this idea of homeostasis things tend towards status quo and and whenever there's a change there's always going to be uh, a reaction against change to bring it back to the status quo and so it happens at the at the at the bio, at the cellular level you know that um you know, viruses, you know, mutate quickly or you know, bacteria mutate quickly as a result of, um, you know, uh, antibiotics. 
You know, they, they learn ways of getting around an antibiotic. They, they mutate into something that will then, um, to gain some advantage. And so every, at every level, from the cellular, cellular to the tribal to the national, um, there's always going to be someone or some group or something that's going to try to get an advantage over whatever the present situation is. That progress is never won. It's always going to be undone. You know? Well, how about, uh, how about like, you know, the, the Civil War? Or it hasn't been, it's not over. It's not over. It is not over. People do not accept that <laughs> the Civil War is over in some circles, right? I mean, it's been over sure, for 120 okay. some years. Okay, maybe a better example is World War II. There, there has been a lot of revisionist views of, yeah. of history. Right. Revisionist views of, oh, maybe Genghis Khan wasn't so bad. Right. Uh, I'd be hard-pressed to find any sympathizers of the Third Reich. At least outwardly. I don't mean like the oh, under... But there are people that are outwardly now supporting, um, you know, the Nazis. Uh, e either directly or indirectly. Well, you know, maybe, you know, uh, maybe not heads of state, but certainly they're Nazi sympathizers. But that but there's no groundswell with that, right? I, I think it's uh, I think it's underground. I, I really think that it's not over. Nazism is a virus and it's and it could come back and it's either not maybe not the Third Reich or the Fourth Fourth Reich, but certainly in um, the racism that's possible in this country I, don't, I used to think that it was over and, and when it was done and it was a done deal. I, I no longer think that. I think that it could definitely come back again under the right conditions. Anti-Semitism is just rampant now in Europe. There was an article in the New York Times this week about uh, soccer games. I can't remember what country it was. Was it Belgium? I can't remember. Some European country where the fans are chanting anti-Semitic uh, Epithets, you know, gas the Jews, gas the Jews. Right. Are why? Players? Like, why are they doing that? I, I have no idea why. You know, partly it's, um, there's, there's lots of immigration by uh, Muslims, and that apparently is fueling a, a overt anti-Semitism. No, but are they, you said it's during a soccer game? Yeah. They're just, but are they, they're not, it has nothing to do with the actual game? I'm not exactly sure how it got started, but there. I'll send you the article. It was just uh, in, in the uh, New York Times last week about how uh, at, a, at a soccer game in Europe, and this is, isn't the first time where the crowds, maybe maybe drunks, you know, from uh, start chanting anti-Semitic uh, stuff. You know. Well, look at you. you would think at, we, you would think that was over, but it's not. It's coming back in Europe big time. Well, I mean, look at I mean race in this country. Yeah. I mean the the. The, uh, I mean, I feel like every time that I uh, turn on my computer, I'm reading about or even witnessing uh, a young African American man getting accosted or right. shot or murdered right. or beaten by uh, by Caucasian police officers. Right. Yeah. And then there's up here's the thing that I'm intrigued about, and and I guess a little. I'm personally saddened. There's huge uproar, and then it dies down very quickly. And I feel like the more incidents 
happen, we become quickly quicker to desensitize. I mean, the yeah. like Eric Gardner was that was like Thanksgiving, and now it, I just feel like that's that's like a year ago. It's all news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's things just I mean they pop up and then they just go back. I mean I feel like right. you get it. There's that initial shock of like oh no again. And I guess, I don't know if it's technology or, or we just have ADD and we just well, kind of move on. There's this term called uh, compassion fatigue where, uh, you know, we're bombarded daily with stories um, about how bad things are, <laughs> you know, everywhere. I mean, there was just the story over the weekend about the 700 Libyans right. in a capsized boat. And... Uh, and so there's no end of tragic stories every single day, and um, so after a while you, you start to you know you feel bad, but you're 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 so bombarded by horror stories that after a while you just want to turn it off and eat your potato chips and drink beer and watch you know watch a game or something. Is that always been, or do you think that's a phenomenon in no, recent I think times? It's, it's probably always been. I mean, after a while, you know. You're, there, there's, there's just been st some studies about this recently. It's not recent, but it's, it was reported recently about who are you more, most likely to feel empathic for. Um, it, well, makes sense. You're most likely to feel empathic towards people in your tribe. Yes. And not strangers. Yeah. And so if it's happening to your group, you might keep that, that more, uh, uh, that compassion more in focus, but if it's happening to other people after a while, you just kind of turn away from it. I think mean, it's normal. So do you think that's why we uh, we don't really, like the United States, although you know, we, we, we discuss the horrors of the, ho the, the, the Jewish Holocaust, right. we hardly ever discuss Rwanda no. or anything that goes on in Africa, right. Sierra Leone. Do you think it's because of that, what you just said, in terms of well, a like-minded individual? Well, I think Jews have done a really good job at telling the story. And they're white. You know, and so therefore, they, and they're, they were European, you know, and therefore we identify, you know, white, white European Americans can identify more with that story. Easier and, to cast in a Hollywood movie. Yeah, right. It makes for a great story. Nazis are, it's a great story. I mean, it was a horrible Obviously, it's just a, a, an immense horror, but um, you know the Nazi era is like cowboys and Indians. Now they are in a genre of storytelling, and I, I don't know why in Rwanda we just can't identify as much with uh, Africans. Why do you think? Uh, they're just why, culturally why, so different from us. Why is it that our uh, United States culture can't do the same with slavery, though? Can't do the same with. You mean uh, identifying with and no, it's uh, you know we, America has been able to, I guess, to some degree heal, but certainly examine yeah. the the Holocaust of, of the World War Two. Uh, we have you know several you know we have yeah. museums, several museums even in in, in New York alone. Um, every movie about slavery that's made bombs. Nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'll give you an example. So, uh, so remember when 12 Years a Slave came out like yeah. a couple uh, um, uh, couple Christmases ago? 
uh, I remember that was playing next to uh, Medea goes to jail. You know the, the Tyler Perry cross dressing. I saw a crowd of white people go into Twelve Years a Slave and a crowd of black people going into Medea goes to jail. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So yeah. I, why? I, I guess I've always wondered why uh, we as a society, but but I guess maybe African Americans in particular. Well, maybe can't yeah. we? You know. Slavery gets ignored by by, yeah. by blacks. Uh, Jews, um, you know, openly discuss right. the Holocaust. Right. I I don't know what to make of that. Well, except that slavery happened a lot longer. There is still racism. There's no question about that. I think people would talk about racism, but um, it's maybe sl slavery is harder to identify, and people don't want to be identified as as being former slaves, you know, maybe they want to distance themselves from that experience, and um, so therefore they, they don't want to, I don't know, talk about it quite as much. I'm not sure. But I mean, but certainly up until the, there, God, when I grew up, I met people who were in the camps, you know, I uh, worked in this city, you know, Camden, New Jersey, and there were a lot of Jews, some refugees. And uh, one day, you know, I had to go and deliver something. I was in high school. This guy had a tattoo with all his number, numbers on it. I said, what is that anyway? <laughs> is your locker combination? Yeah, I said, what are, what are those numbers? And he told me. And, uh, and that was really a revelation. And, uh, but there are no former slaves living, so therefore it's hard to identify. Right. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a really complex question American and American racial relations are really just fortunately we've been able to kind of keep it tamped down but I, I, you can imagine under the right conditions it could all just come bursting out if we don't hold it together it's really scary I think that's pretty unlikely though and I, hope I remember so. so when I uh you know when the Rodney King verdict happened right and then there were riots yeah and again that was I just remember when that happened, and I yeah. remember watching. I guess it was, CNN was the only option at the time, and but that's all they talked about for maybe two weeks. Right, right. And you know, it was before the internet, and you know, so they didn't really have a choice. And I just remember people going bananas in right. in, uh, in, in uh, South Central LA, just crazy. Like, and and for a long period of time. Right. I don't think, and I thought it would be the same with Eric Gardner, and but it didn't happen. Yeah. And, and you know, maybe it has to do with what you just talked about. Technology. Well, we have... entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, Studs Terkel, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Studs Terkel said something I heard. He was interviewed years ago on Fresh Air um, by Terry Gross, and he said that his, his theory of why, why didn't America turn fascist when uh, it was certainly here, you know, we were, we were trying to keep out of the war and we were ignoring what the Nazis were doing. Uh, and we went kicking and screaming into the Second World War. But he said, why didn't America turn fascist when we had the Depression? Uh, we had some of the same conditions in Europe. And his theory was um, because we had a really lively popular culture. You know, we had music, we had movies, you know, we had art. And, and his thought was uh, the strength of American popular, the buoyancy of American popular culture uh, really kept us, kept our mood more positive than negative, that it could have tilted, you know, in the opposite way. 
that if, if our popular culture hadn't been what it was. And, and that really made a lot of sense to me. Well, also, too, uh, when you look at all, like, recent situations where there's been some uh, a social reaction, like yeah. the Arab Spring or yeah. um, a few months ago when uh, um, all the, the, the Chinese youth like, kind of assembled together, those are all monolithic cultures. Right. America is just so diverse. Right. You know, right. Um, something that may be so important and significant to one group. I, I mean, I even give a shit. Right. I mean, I may have, I may have empathy yeah. for you, but I'm, I probably won't do anything about it. Like, oh, that sucks. Yeah. Well, what's, uh, what's on Netflix tonight? I, I, I'm not blaming, I'm not blaming technology in this incident. I'm just, we're just so different. There's just so many of us, and there, so many different views. And, and because, yeah, because yeah. because our country affords us those views, and we can we can think whatever we want and almost do the things that we want, um, uh, more so than other countries. Then I will, I will fuck off. I, I don't, you know, it, I don't have to give a shit, because I, I have so much more freedom. Yeah. And again, it goes back to that, you know, that beach ball that's that's being repressed. I, I can I can fuck off. I can I can get drunk. Yeah. You know, you you form your rally. I, I, don't, I don't really care. Yeah, well, maybe that's, you know, that's a good point. I think that, um, yeah, maybe the... Okay, uh, like the Occupy Wall Street. You remember that? Yeah. That was, that was great in theory. Oh, I, I was fascinated by that. I Did went you go down, down there? there? a lot. Yeah, I have a... It was a, a circus. It was, it was a party. A, it was a shit show. I loved it. Yeah. It was like people selling their shit on, the, you know, on eBay, and you had a... Sarah Palin impersonator. It was fascinating. I, I have a lot of photographs. I have to put that together in a book. Uh, just loved it. I was down there a lot because it was such a circus. And one day they had a... Uh, what was it? They had... Uh, God, it was a Saturday. And um, they had gotten a lot of clothes from uh, secondhand stores. And so all these kids were dressing up. It was like a fashion show. They put on a That's ridiculous. Show. It was so much fun, though. But they lost. They, they didn't have a focus, and then it was yeah, and they, and they just it was shut down. But it was it was really a lot of fun, and uh, it kind of uh, showed that I thought it was great because it seemed that young people were at least uh, paying attention to something other than themselves. This idea of economic injustice. And uh, do you think that's why we're there? I I I, being, I had the complete opposite re reaction. I felt that somebody. Yeah. Uh, theoretically, put a stage up, and you had a bunch of people just rushing the stage and doing all kinds of like, like one, one guy's on a unicycle, one guy's juggling, oh, one yeah, guy yeah. has face paint. Like, oh, it was, it was crazy. Well, you know, I had, the, I had the same reaction during the Vietnam War, by the way, that, that you're talking about. Uh -huh. I, I always distrusted the protests, and I never thought people were serious. And this is probably part of my deep working class cynicism. I thought the I thought I I did I didn't think we should have been in in Vietnam at all. You know, I was really deathly afraid of getting drafted. But I also thought that the student protests were just bullshit. These are a bunch of us. excuse to have a concert. Used to have excuse to have a concert and get high, and and uh, take your top off. You know, and run around. And sounds great. And as soon as the war was over, that was the end of of political protest. Like within twenty four hours. Uh, my generation stopped, you know, getting politically active. Stopping cut their hair. Oh yeah, they, I mean, they they just became, you know, they were co-opted by whatever, you know, and so I never trusted that movement either. So I don't trust, I don't trust groups. I don't trust popular movements. 
Um, did you ever investigate but, but all those? They're fascinating, you know, maybe to be a part of. What region did you go to school? Um, College, under New Jersey, Philadelphia. So that was that was pretty liberal or conservative. Very working class. Yeah, I grew up in a very working class. Did you have certain certain uh, uh, groups, social groups that you were curious about? Like, did you ever get uh, uh, like like a, like you have you ever get recruited to like a socialist group or anything like that? Oh no, no, nothing like that. No, I was never a joiner. I went to a, a meeting for fifteen minutes for a fraternity and thought this is just totally ridiculous and. Uh, I didn't want to. I, I never wanted to really belong to a group, and I was working a lot because I worked at UPS in the morning and a, another job in the afternoon. So I, I had to work through college, and so I had a pretty miserable time and didn't have any fun. <laughs> you know, but it was just, you know, I, I didn't really want to belong to any group and give up my autonomy. What was your goal then? Because everybody wants to belong to something. What was my goal? My goal was to uh, have a girlfriend. <laughs> get a job and get laid. I mean, that was what I wanted, and I was I was success, successful in getting work, but not getting the girlfriend or getting laid. So it was, it was, it was a pretty miserable time. Yeah, because I just wanted to have serious conversations, and that was not the way to. Yeah. Get what paid. would you do in hindsight? Like for me, I would. What would I more, do in hindsight? I would have more fun. Like I was, it, when yeah. I went to college, I was the I was the serious guy. Yeah. I, I didn't drink. I didn't drink in college. That's so stupid. I was so serious, you know. Uh, people would go out and party. I would well, like let, read books. Let me I'm ask so, you. So stupid. Are you satisfied with what, who you are now? Oh yeah, of course. But yeah. I, I do well, that. that created half, you. Half, yes, of course. It's half tongue in cheek, but yeah. I was definitely like a mopey guy. Like, yeah. I, I, I couldn't embrace. I couldn't embrace the moment. I guess that's what I regret. Yeah. Regret's a hard word, but. Um, I was judgmental too. So when you're focused like that, and you're a young person, and you're listening to certain music that you think you should be listening to, or watching movies that you feel like are, yeah. I never, I never fooled myself. I never said that like, oh, I watch Fellini's movies and they're, you know, and I love them. They're great. You know, I, yeah. I had, you know, I, I never did that. But I definitely, I definitely did things that I thought that I should do as opposed to enjoying the moment right. or understand or just kind of absorbing the moment whatever that was hmm. um, yeah and I remember I so I met this um, I met a, a, a friend's uh, sister who um, you know is, is, is you know very serious and she's uh, gonna be a freshman she's a senior in college in high school now she's gonna be a freshman this fall she's super smart but I feel I see a lot of how I was with her in, in the sense that she's just She's just laser focused. Yeah. So I feel like there are one or two things that are going to happen. Either she's going to be that way and she's just going to be very closed and she's going to excel. But, but by definition, be very narrow in the sense that like, you're not really exposed to, yeah. to all kinds of other nuances. Or she's going to be like, fuck this, I have freedom, and lose her mind. Yeah. I, I guess if I, if I had to do over, I, I guess I wish I hadn't been so scared. I was just scared constantly, and you know, college. I, I just, uh, I was just terrorized. I think that I lived in such a repressive environment. My family was pretty, pretty nutty, you know. And then Catholic school. <laughs> it just, I, I was filled with fears, and uh, and then uh, I, I, I don't know, kind of broke out of it. 
and was an introvert, and you know, still am to some degree. Speaking of personalities, just one another thing. I was uh, actually I was thinking about on the way here. Um, you know, uh, were, were you ever were you a bully growing up, or were you did you ever get bullied? I I I, I did bully occasionally. I wasn't a bully, but there were times when I joined in the group and, and abused people. Physically? Yeah. Wow. Not not a lot. Um, not like pummeling people. There were at least there was at least uh, two incidents where I'm really deeply ashamed, and, and I think about it a lot. Let's yeah. Hear it. There was one guy. Uh, his name was Joseph Karalfi. And he was kind of a schlubby guy in my high, in my grammar school, and people would make fun of him. And uh, one day, you know, he had a little rip in his coat, in his suit jacket. You know, it's Catholic school, and I ripped like the whole thing. And uh, the nun sent me home, and I got in trouble for it. And I, I just, I really felt bad and wanted to apologize. So I ended up running into his daughter, who was a standardized patient. Wow. In New Jersey. Years later, when I worked in Philly, I ran into his, I met his daughter, and it turned out to be a standardized patient in this program in Jersey. And I said, look, I really have something to confess. Maybe you could pass this on to your father. And I told her. And I don't know if it ever got to him. Maybe I should have gotten his number and, and personally apologized. But I felt really terrible that I was such, that I was such a bully. What provoked that day, though? Oh, just showing off. Being insecure, uh, wanting to get but was it, a was laugh. it a daily thing? No. Like, was he like the, was he like the the butt of jokes? And... He was the butt of jokes. Yeah, yeah. And and people didn't beat him up, but he was kind of the butt of jokes. And I, it just was a stupid thing to do. And I was just a kid and feeling insecure, and I want people to like me, so I'm going to join in, and beat somebody up, or you know, humiliate this guy. I humiliated him. I didn't beat him up. And. Uh, so my father it had to come to school, <laughs> you know, and um, I couldn't return unless I brought my father. So my father, who's really pissed now because now he's going to have to miss some work. He's a factory worker, so he brings me in to the schoolyard, and uh, and I can and I'm confronted, you know, with the nun with my behavior, and I said something to the nun that my father didn't like, and he just backhanded me, just, you know, backhanded me in front of all of my friends, and I felt like three inches big, you know, and, uh, but I also felt like I deserved it, you know, but that's the kind of family I grew up in, that you were just, uh, it was very verbally abusive and crazy, and so I kind of felt that I needed to be abused for my abuse, so it was kind of a cycle, but that was the end of that. You know, I, I learned my lesson, but I was really humiliated, and uh, but it further just depressed me. So I can't say it was a good outcome. I feel like you gained a lot of empathy for that. Well, I, I that certainly kid. gained a lot of empathy. Yeah, I really uh, felt bad for for doing that to this guy. And uh, see, one thing that I, well, one thing that I've in my in my travels in my my adult life and oh, and another time I, I got into a fight with somebody that was unpopular, and the nun, when she heard about it, brought me down to her office and punched me in the jaw. 
I mean, this is the kind of crazy. I thought you used to get the rosary beads. You get the like an actual clothes. She, she like uh, when she heard because I I was um, uh, a, a Protestant from the neighborhood reported me, and so she brought me into her office. And like Northern Ireland. This big ass nun. She just like I mean she literally punched me in the jaw for fighting. So the schizophrenia of that moment was not lost on me, but it, it also just further just, you know, you, you come out feeling like diminished, like a little nub, you know? What was the fight about? Oh, about nothing. Just picked a fight with this kid. Smaller kid? No, no, he was my size. He wasn't, he wasn't a smaller kid, but he was just another unpopular kid. Sound like, you sound like a pretty angry kid back then. Oh, I was, oh yeah, definitely. And I, I didn't do this every day. This, these are a couple isolated incidents, but I was pretty angry. Yeah. And looking back on it now, I can see it. I guess the reason I brought that up is because I, I, I often wonder, um, you know, I meet so many people uh, as an adult that, yeah. that say like, oh, you know, I was, I was picked on, I had a bully. Now granted, the, the circles I typically run in aren't, aren't, aren't very like machismo, testosterone driven. Well, yeah, generally they're not. Um, so I was wondered like, well, I mean, I was I was bullied to some degree. Like, where where are they? All they do, they, where do they go? Where do the bullies go? Yeah, do they, where do they go? I mean, do they become CEOs? Do they become go into politics? Do they become highway patrolmen? I don't know. I mean, I think that I'm not talking about what you did. Yeah, I'm talking about like the people real people that really have a lifestyle. The, 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 the snotty nosed kid in the Disney movie. Right, right. Uh, those are the ones that go on. And Abuse women, you know, probably, or abuse kids or their partners. The ones that have a lifestyle of bullying, and not just an isolated incident. And that's why I think that anybody is capable of anything under the right circumstances. Uh, but I don't know, those people, you, I knew some of those people who were scary as kids and you wanted to stay away from them. I, I was almost abused by my friend's brother once and uh, this was an angry guy and he was probably 12 and I was you know maybe seven and um, and I knew I got to stay away from this guy and he trapped me once and uh, you know tried to sexually abuse me and I just kind of had to fight my way out of it how much older was he uh, he was probably at least five years older you know so he was big I was seven he was probably 12 and angry he, guy. Did he, did he have a reputation for that? Or? Oh, I didn't know him at all. He was, he was my friend's brother, and um, my friend got called into the house. We were in this kid's clubhouse, and he pulls out his, his penis, you know, and says he wants me to pull out mine, and he's angry. And I really learned something about rapists that day, I thought. I mean, I had never experienced anything like that. I thought, I just learned something about men, you know. And it really stuck with me that there are certain there are certain people that are really angry. I mean, my father was angry, but he wasn't like that. I mean, he he had another kind of anger. There's so many different varieties of anger. But you know, you, you learn to recognize these guys, and uh, he he was in a whole other class. I mean, I did like garden variety bullying. I wouldn't even call it that. I was just an asshole. I was being an asshole more than a bully. <laughs> Uh, but I didn't bully kids, you know, because I, yeah, I don't know. You know, I hear about, uh, you know, like those near misses. I hear, like, I hear about that a lot. Yeah. You know, about, like, my, uh, we had this, uh, so my brother's friend um, was a, 
part of a church, and he uh, he signed us up for this thing, like, like this 4-H club. I didn't know what 4-H club was. Right. So he promised us like we'd go to a pool and we'd play basketball. So my brother and I went there, and I was just like, man, this is bullshit. We're just learning about Jesus, and right. we weren't at that point. My brother and I weren't we weren't involved in Christianity or anything. So we're like, this is bullshit. So we were pissed. And, but he, was, I, he wasn't my friend, he was my brother's friend. And then there was a counselor. Uh, he was an older guy. So we were like elementary school age. And this guy was maybe, he was like in his early 30s. You know? And uh, so he would, um, he's like, hey, you know, calm down, guys. I'll play basketball with you. Or, and I didn't want, I don't know what compelled me. I just, maybe because I was just rebelling and I just didn't want to do anything. I didn't go in the pool. Yeah. I didn't play basketball. I said, fuck this. I'm tough. I'm right. I'm right. You guys are wrong. I'm not giving in. And I didn't do it. So my brother became friends with the the counselor, the 31 year old guy. Yeah. Let's call him. Let's call him Steve. And so uh, they. So then he uh, and then he said, "Hey, they invited me camping. Do you want you know?" And so, that's right. So we were going home, and he said, "I'm going camping next week with them." I was like, "How come I didn't get invited?" Because you didn't, you just sat inside and moped. I was like, yeah, or whatever. So, uh, and my brother didn't tell me this until years later on the camping trip. Uh, the, the guy was really friendly with my brother. Uh, and then when they were like fishing, because my brother loves to fish to this day, he's, he's an avid fisherman. They were fishing, um, and the guy took off, the guy told my brother, he's like, I, I love you. Mm. <laughs> So yeah, it freaked out my brother. How old was he? Was he much older? My brother? Yeah, I mean, uh, this, this guy. Oh, well my brother at the time must have been like 10. Uh -huh. And this guy's like 31. Uh, yeah. And he said, yeah, I love you. Uh -oh. It'd be one thing, you know, I guess, you know, and we, we've talked about this. Yeah. It's one thing if you like try to touch him. And then obviously there's that, you know, there's the knee-jerk, re uh, involuntary reaction to like running. But what do you do when a, like an adult says that? Like, it's just... And he was just like super friendly to him, and he was. Yeah. So then he was just like, because you know that impulse, like you can't punch. Yeah, like he's he's saying something nice, and he's always been nice, but it, this does not feel right. Yeah, yeah, and they're they're and I think fortunately kids are, um, you know, taught more. There's more of a discussion around handling yourself better, you know, in those ways. I mean, if I had a little girl, if I if I had, uh, you know, girls. As children, I would definitely, the first thing I would do is make sure they got martial arts so they could defend themselves. I mean, the abuse, it's just rampant. Girls get abused, and um, so they have to learn to handle themselves. And I don't know whether you know, fighting your way out of a situation is always the smart thing, but at least you, you might have that. You could set off a vibe, set up a vibe that, you know, don't fuck with me. Yeah, I did what we were saying earlier. I, I, uh, it's such a wonderment to me when I, I think about, you know, I'm a guy, you know, I'm, I'm not the biggest guy in the world, but I'm, I'm still a guy, and if it's, I could still walk home, yeah. by myself. Yeah. You know it. It's awful. Yeah, I, I think that women, and it's relatively. <laughs> easy to live here, but when you read about what women's lot in life is like in other countries, and oh, yeah. how they're repressed and abused, and nobody gives a shit, or it's just part of the culture, you know. Uh, 
I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, it's not good. It's not good. Not a good life for a lot of women. But I think here at least, um, you know, we have some, some, I think at least it's being talked about much more. And I'm, I'm really happy they're talking about what's going on on campuses, you know, that they shut down that fraternity. What, uh, why are we still doing fraternities in 2015? Why, why is this, why, why, what's know. the point of that? People like to get together in an artificial tribe. We've, we've uh, nixed a lot of things that we feel in this day and age are inappropriate. Yeah. Minstrel shows, for instance, yeah. we don't do them anymore. What's the point of a fraternity? <laughs> get together in a group, have parties. By definition, it's uh, it's separatism, and when you are separate separating, I guess you're preaching fascism, right? What you when you when you create a group, you don't say we're equal just like them. Yeah. I mean, you say well, you're, we're, you're we're better than them. Well, I think people have a right to associate in a group. I don't have a problem. But why with Greek? That. Why Greek life? Yeah, you can I make you know. can do a chess club. You can I don't do get it myself. A, it's not a society. Yeah. I guess, well, I guess what I'm, what I'm, my, my personal feeling, and I, I've just, I, I feel like it's outdated. I feel like we don't, like, why do colleges need, need this? Men in groups with alcohol equals, you know, you're on your way to Nazism. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it really, I just think that it's... Uh... You, go to, you go to college to make that transition from yeah. living at home and, and you know... Uh, being like a boyhood right. to being on your own and, and transitioning to being an adult and taking care of yourself. So why are why are colleges encouraging young men or, or, or on the flip side girls uh, in their in their in their sororities to join a group that is counterintuitive of that mindset that to you know you gotta shove these donuts up your ass and then you have to drink <laughs> You know, this like a gallon of beer and then run around naked. Yeah. I, I don't like I. Yeah, there's a kind of a sadomasochistic, homoerotic uh, kind of thing to it. I've always thought, and that's why I didn't want to participate. Even, I, don't, even not, a, I don't want to be humiliated as a price to join your fucking group. Right, that whole Groucho yeah, Marx. Fuck quote. that shit. Yeah. At its optimum, it's yeah. We're creating a brotherhood. You know, you people that you can right. lean on. Well, yeah, they, that exists in life. It's called friends. Right, right. And I, I just uh, yeah, yeah. You can join in whatever group you want, but you have to you have to kind of question the uh, the psychosexual dynamics of fraternities. Yeah, spanking and what is all this about? Right, well, you know. <laughs> if I said to me, yeah, um, I want you to join this group because I want you to learn. I want you to evolve. I want you to contribute to a project that we don't know where it's going, but uh, we're we're going to keep um, you know moving forward. Uh, that would have excited me. That would have excited me. I think so. I'm kind of I've kind of tried to create the culture that I always wanted to join and be a part of. Not that I've always been successful at it, but ever I've always thought that I want to I want to work in a, in a kind of a culture in which um, um, there, for, there has to be a leader you know somebody's got to kind of lead the way and um, but where we're, we're learning together and 
we try new things and uh, so, I don't know. It sounds kind of vague, I guess. <laughs> And the, and the but you know young it, Tony would be fine with that. Yeah, it would. I mean, I, I when I was getting my doctorate, I finally uh, I, I took this thing that was called career anchor. Uh, you know, I was looking to change careers from psychotherapy to something else, and I hadn't yet gotten to, into this field in a big way. And so, um, one of the so after this this inventory, what it, what it found was that it was career anchors are what are the things that keep anchoring you to your careers over and over again? What do you keep coming back to? And for me, it was um, lifestyle. And the lifestyle included autonomy, uh, learning, and, and travel. I mean, those are the three big requirements I had for a job. I want to have a job where I have somewhat, somewhat autonomous. I don't want to work under the thumb of anyone. I want to call the shots as much as possible. Um, I, want to, I want to learn. I, I have to keep learning or else I'm not happy. And I want to travel. I want to be in a job that will take me places. And so. Uh, and it kind of freed me up to think about as long as I have that formula, then I could probably work in a lot of different places. Con men? Con men, yes. <laughs> could be, I'd love to be a con man. I've been trying to uh, interest people in a caper. <laughs> you, you know, and, have we talked about this, the caper? Did I try no, to you know, what's that? be involved in a caper? Well, you know, like an Ocean's Eleven type of operator. <laughs> Maybe we should turn off the mic. <laughs> Maybe let's turn off the mic. Uh, Tony, before we run out of time, yes. uh, I, I ask some of all my yes. What is happiness to you? What is happiness? A warm gun. No. <laughs> um, I don't know. This is happiness, Van, having a good conversation. This is as close as it gets for me. A good conversation is what I consider happiness and a good time. Likewise. So thank you for making me happy. Hey. I'm, hey. I'm deadly serious. This is a free-ranging conversation. It tickles me to death. <laughs> yeah, we just, we just, this is fun. We just needed some whiskey or something. Yeah, yeah I know. Next time um, we'll do it with bourbon. Can we... Uh, can we um, can we plug it? Plug the Sim Studio or anything oh, yeah. you want to direct people to? The Simulation Studio. Yes, I, I co-founded this with Laurie Schroeder, my good friend, and we are uh, devoted to merging science, medicine, theater, and in, in kind of exciting um, small and large venues. And so we have something coming up. It's sold out, unfortunately, April 30th on uh, a physical theater performance on mindfulness with Mary Catherine Donnelly and uh, Marisol Soledad. So we're really excited about that. That's, a, a, that's an original simulation studio production here in town. Uh, we'll be, uh, we have a conference coming up in Philadelphia, a big simulation conference on multidimensional mindfulness on October 17th. Um, on October 15th and 16th in Philadelphia, we'll have two small simulation studio salon events. So, um, and a possible collaboration with the uh, the podcast and doing something. We're, we're, we're I don't want to. I don't want to. Development is mindfulness curious world. With, with we're gathering the wood. We're gathering the wood. We we're, may, we're, may start the fire. We are. Um, Gathering, we want to have an evening of unbridled curiosity. 
And so Van will be there. Van, uh, I'm talking to your audience now, <laughs> because of, because of this uh, of this curious world. Um, I think that we want to have a night of curiosity, and I don't know what that venue is going to be like. It could be anywhere, so that's why we need. We're gonna we're gonna def, we're definitely going to be doing this. We just have to figure well, out. Uh, we'll talk about that when we venue. also talk in, in between breaks of when we talk about the caper. Right. Yeah. Uh, can you give the website to the Sim Studio? We don't have one. We communicate by rumor. <laughs> but uh, we are, but we are going to have a website. It'll be simstudio.org. But there's a there's a Facebook page now. No, oh. we don't do any of the, the ordinary things, uh, things that we should be doing. And we, our business model is have fun and lose money. So <laughs> it's really, you should open up a winery. That's really like, right, exactly. So we're um, but we are getting a website if we can find somebody that will actually finish it for us, so that we could. Uh, but we kind of we're we're a Chautauqua. Do you know what a Chautauqua is? Mm -mm. Uh, Chautauqua, New York, was a place where they had uh, they started the Chautauqua Institute in the 19th century. It was the first um, kind of adult education movement, and in the summer times they put up a big tent, and different people would come in and talk about different topics of the day. Whatever it could be, anything. It was free ranging. It wasn't about religion. It was about science, art, theater, religion, and uh, Chautauqua tents. Were, were these tents that they would put up around the country, I think, and then they would, uh, different people would come and talk and learn. And so that, the Chautauqua tent, here, simulation studio. There you go. There, oh, wow. There, there's the tent on the cup. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that's, Is it always bright, brightly colored? Uh... It, it depends on, yes, it's brightly colored signifying the different uh, things that we're interested in. And we have, we put, we put up a tent the circus comes to town, and then we take the tent down and go away, and then uh, then we revise our, revive ourselves. So, but we are going to get a website. We have to get on Facebook. I have a, a Twitter account, never used it, and uh, but we 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 exist largely by word of mouth, and we have a big following in Philadelphia, so that's going to be our next venue. But we've had six conferences. Number seven's coming up. We've been in Philadelphia, New York, and. Uh, San Francisco and Oakland, California. So we've, we're, we're active, but we're, I don't know, got to get organized. 2015. 2015 the, could be here. It's, it's the year to do it. Yeah. Uh, Tony, thanks for doing this. Well, thank you, Van. It's been a great time. Likewise, really, likewise. I really am honored to be here. Um, so there you have it, uh, sweet friends, the, uh, the definitive, definitive conversation with the always joyful, always pleasant Dr. Anthony Arichetti. Bodhisattva, go out and do good in the world. Thanks for listening.